that's all we get from her. But the whole point of the series was not to talk about women just for the offspring that they right. bore. Right, right, right. And here we might need uh, another good title for, okay, how do we talk about who this Mary is? Because, yeah, there, there's more to it than just she happened to birth Jesus. That's an important <laughs> big thing. And that that required more than just the actual moment or, or hours of labor as well. That to be a, a, a mother is this life lifelong thing. And like um, Simeon had warned her when the baby's eight days old, eventually her heart's going to get pierced over this too. She's going to know what it's like to lose this child who she loves too. So there's a lot that's wrapped up in her being the mother of Jesus, uh, but there's more to her than even just that too. But in that birth narrative, like in her Magnificat, in her song, Mm -hmm. when we see how how much, how well versed she is in scriptures Mm -hmm. and how well she knows... um, whether it's at that moment or eventually, you know, these words kind of have come about. Yeah. Um, she starts to realize exactly who her son is. Yeah. So there's that sense of she is, Elika, as Luke presents her in that opening chapter, someone who knows her story, knows knows the scripture, mm-hmm. knows and uh, has a sense of um, being able to apply or see the connection between what God has done in the past to what's about to happen and unfold in her uh, world right around her. I mean, that, that's that's an important gift. That's an important ability to see not only what God did a long time ago, but what does that have to do with what's going on right now and to be want to be a part of that. I mean, that, that that's a, a big deal. That's an important part of Mary as a, a theological voice or as a voice of faith in addition to the fact that later on she births this baby, yeah. Because as we mentioned in the last episode with Mary of Magdalene, uh, you know, women weren't necessarily you know well versed in in the scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures like men were. Mm-hmm. I mean, men were raised to you know hopefully to become a rabbi. You know, all boys were raised to a point <laughs> that they hope you know they become a rabbi. But the women necessarily didn't get that same type of education. Right so here, we've got a woman who's clearly been educated mm-hmm. in her um, in her faith in her religion and has paid attention to that, which maybe wasn't always the case. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so, uh, beyond that infancy time, she shows up again, uh, that weird little scene we get when Jesus is 12 years old, nobody can find him, and, and uh, she yeah. says, you know, uh, didn't you know we'd be worried for you, and, you know, uh, your father and I were, were all upset, worried, and, uh, you know, Jesus says, oh, didn't it make sense I'd be in my father's house? Um, and then, the next place, you mentioned this, Sarah, she shows up, uh, without being named, maybe, but she shows up at the wedding at Cana story, right? Yeah, I think... She is named, not by Jesus, of course. <laughs> Jesus just calls her a woman. Uh-huh. But, yeah, she shows up at this wedding. It's um, one of Jesus' first public miracles. And um, they're, they're guests at this wedding, Jesus and his family, and I think a couple of his disciples. And they, want, they run out of wine. And Jesus' mother, Mary, comes up to Jesus and is all like, solve this issue yeah just just do some do do something something. and jesus goes woman what is this to you or to me like who cares if they run out of wine and and mary as mothers do just turns to the servants and says do whatever he tells you yeah and then walks away problem solved yeah (laughs) there is something cool though to me about this like there there is this tension in that story because I don't think John means to paint Jesus as a jerk who's uncaring, but Jesus' response when uh, when Mary approaches him and says they've run out of wine, Jesus says, you know, what is that to you and me? My hour hasn't come. That Jesus seems to be intentional, knowing that every action he does is somehow important and is meant to be part of this sort of unfolding story or, or uh, uh, 
Jesus, Jesus' actions aren't random in the Gospels. They're conscious and chosen, sometimes intentionally to be provocative, sometimes to be, you know, loaded with theological meaning. And especially in John's Gospel, for whom once Jesus does a miracle, he spends the next chapter, like, using that as an object lesson. You know, so he feeds 5,000 people, and now here's a sermon on me as the bread of life. You know, he helps somebody to see the light, literally, and then he gives a sermon. I'm the light of the world. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and I'm the resurrection and the life. I mean, this is intentional both by Jesus and John, the Gospel writer, and I think part of the concern is I'm not just here to do publicity stunts, Ma. I, I get it. I care about it, but, like, this is an intentional moment, and, and because, as John tells it, it's before Jesus' sort of public ministry begins, there's this, like, I don't know that I want this to be, like, my coming on the scene as the guy who provided extra booze. Uh, there's, there, I mean, the, the, the first thing you say is an important, like, you know, that's your first impression, and Jesus' provider of booze doesn't go over well. It's, called, uh, it's Jesus the college years. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh and yeah, I mean, so the, I think there's an intentionality in Jesus' part, not that he doesn't care, but I think on the flip side, there that Mary has this, like, these people matter. And the fact that Jesus uh, goes along with and helps, I think is also, I, I don't mean to say that he has to be goaded into being compassionate, but I think it's certainly a moment where it's, you know what, yeah, the plans can be set aside for a moment. Here's a, here's a moment where I can be a part of it, at least helping these people not be embarrassed as they're getting married. You know, and like, that's a piece of it. It's not, it's not that Jesus is like, people need to be getting drunk. I need to help make it happen. It's more like there's great shame if you've thrown this party and you run out and you're the, you know, the, the, the poor couple who doesn't have the funds to put on a big party and maybe we're hoping that some of the guests wouldn't have come or what, you know, whatever. They, but they've run out and part of what's, what's going on here is this is a, a huge act of compassion so these people aren't publicly shamed or embarrassed at their own wedding. It's also to save face for Jesus's family because um, in this honor shame society, when you're invited as a close friend to a wedding, um, you are expected to bring some wine to (laughs) to help with the party and to celebration. And so if enough, if not enough wine is brought by the friends, then there's a, that shame of you don't have that many friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so all around, I, I think that's the the right framework for even understanding what's going on in that story. That this isn't about uh, that we need to have more alcohol present and for it to be a real party. Uh, so much as this is about honor and shame and about Jesus caring on that level about people not becoming outcasts or being shamed. And like mm-hmm. I, I think that's an important piece we don't often acknowledge that's going on in a lot of the miracles or a lot mm-hmm. of the scenes with mm-hmm. Jesus that. Uh, it's not simply a matter of uh, Jesus healing a physical malady, but often that Jesus is trying to heal or deal with the shame or the the, the outcastness that, that happens that gets caught up with all whatever the maladies are. Uh, so that like when Jesus heals the leper early on in Mark's gospel, even though we know by earlier miracles Jesus can heal people by just saying so, he doesn't even have to be in the same room, but he deliberately touches this leper. It's this sort of act of like, here's this compassion, I'll absorb the sickness into myself, you, you don't scare me, I'm not going to run away. And th- there's some of that going on here too. There's compassion even in the way Jesus wields this divine mir- miracle-making power. So Mary doesn't show up again after that bit of the conversation, but in an important sense, she's what kicks this off, and she's sort of what makes this the moment that, as John says, Jesus did this his first sign, and many believed in him. Mm. Um, And I I think it's at at least worth lifting up that because of that, uh, Mary... uh, keeps bringing up this, the human faceness to Jesus' story, that like, 
I know you got this grand design, Jesus. I know you're supposed to be the Messiah and all, but don't let people's faces get lost in the midst of this mission. And and I don't think that Jesus runs that. I don't. I don't think Jesus fails at that. But here's this sort of human reminder of uh, Mary saying to him, "These are people. Can we please take care of these people?" And that Jesus doesn't steamroll over her and say, "No, I've got this mission. It's got this exact timetable. I will not be stopped." But he's willing to let the human faces be a part of what his mission's all about. Um, okay, so there, there may be the, the most we get out of Mary's appearance early in the story of Jesus. She also then shows up, as you'd said, Sarah, later on, like toward Jesus' uh, death and uh, passion, right? Uh, yeah, it, again, I can't remember which gospel, but she, oh, Gospel of John, I'm sorry. Um, she appears at the foot of the cross as Jesus is dying, and Jesus entrusts her care to... Is it the beloved disciple? The beloved disciple, yeah. The beloved disciple and says, this is your mother now, and mother, this is your son. And, which is, I think, a very touching moment of Jesus as the oldest son is responsible for his mother's care. Yeah. And uh, especially with the absence of Joseph, who isn't mentioned in Jesus' adult life. So, you know, a mother who doesn't have a husband or sons in Mm -hmm. theory um jesus is making sure at this last moment that she's being taken care of yeah yeah and i think it speaks huge huge volumes about mary herself that she is willing to be there at the crucifixion of her son i mean like this is not only a shameful thing for her but what a gut-wrenching thing it is to be there like there it takes great great courage and great great love to be able to be there with somebody who's hurting and not to be able to fix it. I mean, like, I think maybe if I try and put myself in Mary's shoes in that moment, that to me feels like the hardest part about this is that, and I don't, I don't know if you, either of you feel this, but at least for me, part of the pastoral ministry thing is this ongoing temptation to feel like I'm here to help. I'm a helper. And there, there's so much of life in the church that is, you know, designed around, ah, the pastor will show up and we'll feel better because we prayed or, you know, they'll come up with an answer. And there are times when we can be useful. That's great. But there's an awful lot of it where we're called simply to sit on the ash heap like Job's friends and there's nothing we can do to fix it. We're there because we can't not be uh, mm-hmm. but it's about suffering with people and sharing like Paul will say in Romans weeping with those who weep and um, that it needs to happen that, that that's work that needs done mm-hmm. but it's it's difficult when you go into a situation knowing this isn't about me fixing it nobody's going to fix this this is this is going to be a sad day and i will go and i'll go through the sadness uh and mary does that and there's no illusion i don't think there's any illusion in mary's mind about how this story plays out i don't i don't i don't think when everybody else is calling out if you're the messiah come down from the cross i don't think mary's among those voices i think she gets it this is this is going to go all the way to death my son's going to die right now and if Jesus' disciples have a hard enough time, even though Jesus has been telling them left and right, I'm going to rise from the dead, I'm going to rise from the dead. Like, I think Mary, I don't even think that registers for Mary. So I don't think it's, I don't think Mary's the voice going, it'll be all right, three days from now, we're all going to be happy. I think she knows her heart's getting broken now, and she can't even see past Friday. Because who can, you know? Yeah. And I keep hearing, as we're talking, Steve, this idea of compassion, compassion, compassion. What mm-hmm. Mary keeps showing is this compassion, and it, Anytime I, I think about the, the crucifixion and I think about Mary, I'm not a mother, but just to, to be there as a mother and to see your child die in, in front of your eyes. Mm-hmm. I, I was just at a funeral recently um, for a, a friend's sister, and it, you know their mother is still alive, and 
I was talking with some folks, you know, there, there's words for children that lose their parents, they're orphans, they're, mm-hmm. you know, there's widow and widower if you lose your spouse. There is no word for a parent who loses their child, because that's not the order it's supposed to go yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. And yet we see Mary, as you said, she she doesn't see past Friday, she doesn't necessarily say, no, it's, gonna, it's all going to be okay, because she's just going to rise from, because who raises from the dead except for those ones that Jesus does right, the right. miracle for, and now that he's, the miracle worker is dead, or yeah, dying, who's yeah. going to raise him from the dead? Um, but her courage and her compassion to just stand there yeah. and, and to witness her son die and yeah. then to have him placed into her arms, yeah. you know, when he's taken off the cross, yeah. it, it's just, it's, it's mind blowing yeah. to me. Um, as a woman, like I said, I'm not a parent, but I couldn't imagine having to sit there and watch this as a parent. And to know that you're there. Not only unable to fix, but this is this is going to be day that that is. There's no other word for it, but this is a loss. That this is a you, you, nobody's mm-hmm. going to come. It's not it, on this day. Jesus isn't vindicated. There is no at the last minute the angels come and stop it or anything like that. Rome looks at the death of Jesus and says, "See, we killed him. We won." And Mary has to be able to bear all that smugness from everybody else there, the the Romans and the religious leaders and the crowd who are like, look, we we killed your son. Look, we win. He lost. This loser, we killed him. He was wrong about how God works and we were right and you're just the mother of this loser. And like she bears it all and yeah, Sunday will come. Sunday will come. But um, there isn't this swooping into I got to be proven right. It, it doesn't happen like that. It yeah. doesn't happen. There isn't a moment when Mary goes and now I'm going to get mine against you. Nope, it never happens. In fact, uh, even Jesus dying is praying for the people who've crucified and Father forgive them. And so there's there's no point where this is about winning or uh, looking like you're on the winning side. And I think that's an important burden that Mary bears too. In addition to the grief of losing a son, it's also the nobody's going to vindicate him. He, he he dies as a condemned criminal that day. And nobody stops and says, he was a good man. Or, like You can die a hero's death and at least uh, be remembered immediately as, oh, well, we're so grateful for those people who fought on the battlefields to win our freedom. We're so grateful for the firefighters who lost their lives saving those kittens or whatever. And Jesus doesn't get any of that and neither did Jesus' mom in this moment. It's he dies a condemned criminal, a threat and an enemy of the state and uh, as, as at least as the religious leaders want to present him as a fraud uh even on the religious front too and it's not just all that this is a shameful death yeah. like to be crucified on a cross is not just to be you know speared or you know in today's world to be shot mm-hmm. you know in a firing squad it's not the electric chair this is something that is of great shame right it happens outside the city mm-hmm. um the person is naked up there i mean everything about this is just filled with with shame. And so it's not just that Jesus is dying or that he yeah. gets killed, but he's dying full of shame, not only by being a criminal, but by being crucified. Yeah, yeah. If the Romans wanted to be nice to you when they killed you, they beheaded you. And yeah. instead, this is how they made an example of you. And to think then, like, how, again, there's that additional level for, for Jesus' mother of, it's not, it's not just bad enough for Jesus to be shamed publicly like this, mm-hmm. but for this to happen in front of his mom, that there's this, like, there's this, Rome you know, just doesn't care. Yeah, there's well, I like I mean, Rome Rome delights in twisting the knife that way. They're like, this is how we make an example of you. We not only do this to you, we do it in full right. public view of everybody else who ever knew you or cared about you. And in front of your mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, again, that Mary doesn't run. I mean, like all the other disciples run away, and these are people who've known Jesus what, like at most three years, a handful of years, um, and st- still are sometimes having you know uh, arguments with Jesus, telling him he's wrong about stuff. And here's Mary, who's known him and loved him all his life 
Livelong who doesn't run away in that moment when it would sure be easy for her to say, I just, this is too much for me to take, I can't handle it. I think that's an important picture for uh, what followers of Jesus, the community of Jesus looks like now today, that part of what we're called to do is to stare the, the terrible sorrow uh, and brokenness of the world in the face and not run away from it. Because sometimes that's what needs to be done. Sometimes it's not about we'll, we'll rush in and save it and fix it. Sometimes we religious folk have that sort of picture in our mind. Ah, we're here to save the day with our mission project. Right now, like, sometimes we just need to grieve and sit on the ash heap with people and say this horrible thing is not okay and to, to suffer through it with people. And in last week's episode, Steve, you mentioned Mother Teresa and that uh-huh. that uh, saying, you know, sometimes it's, people are going to make fun of you for doing something, do it anyway. Yeah. And and I see a lot of Mary, Mother of Jesus, and Mother Teresa and the way that she just sat with the people of Calcutta, mm-hmm. how she sat with the untouchables, and how that's a call for, for all of us, not just pastors, but for all Christians to be able to sit with people when we can't fix things. Yeah. Because it's not just pastors that like to fix things. You know, people yeah. like to fix things in general. Mm. But we really like <laughs> things and people think that we can. Yeah. But there's this call to just sit and say, you know what? Yeah, this is a really crappy day. Yeah, yeah. And this is really hard. But I'm just, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to be here with you. Jesus needed somebody to be there with him. Yeah. I wonder, too, if, I don't want to get too, too far into the weird and speculative. But I wonder if, um... I mean, part of what's difficult for Mary's job on that day, on Good Friday, is not just to be witness to a public execution, but to see in that face the face of her son. And if part of our call, too, is that when we're in the presence of other people who are suffering, to see Christ in the presence of those who are suffering as well. Because, um, again, it's really, really easy or tempting, or maybe it's the only way we think we can cope to make suffering into something faceless too like all all those hungry people somewhere and we should Mm. do something about those hungry Mm. people Mm -hmm. uh and we treat it like these are people without faces and it's really really scary to think about that's the face of christ you know but to be like jesus is hungry somewhere and we're letting him die or jesus is hungry and he's alone right now um and that part of our call might be wherever we go wherever they're suffering to dare to say is it possible I'm called to be Mary's role of seeing Christ here and to be present? There's going to be some times when we can help. And if I've got food, I can share it. Or if I've got resources, you know, great. But there's also times where it's, there's nothing to be fixed here. Our call is to simply honor that Christ is here in the midst of this and that Christ groans in the midst of this world's suffering too. That that image, that notion, I think, maybe without specifically bringing up Mary herself, comes up like when Paul talks about the spirit groaning alongside the world and all of its, you know, the futility of creation. So I, I don't think it's, while this may feel a little speculative, it feels like there's some, some kind of grounding. A part of what it is to be the Christian community is to be a people who share the sufferings of others um, and who don't run from it. And uh, Mary does that, again, without Jesus saying, now you, mother, would you please stay and do it? Like, she does it, because that's what she's wired to do, or that's what mothers do. But in a sense, that's a picture for what we're called to do in the midst of whatever the, the day throws at us, whatever we're going through in any, any given day or week. Um, I, I, one other thing I wanted to pick your brain about, uh, Sarah, because you had mentioned earlier the idea of... Um, how come nobody else uh, rises to the fore to help provide shelter, protection for Mary at the cross there? You know, the, how come there aren't other brothers or sisters? When clearly, uh, you believe Mark's story, there's mothers and brothers and sisters, you know, the, the, Jesus has these other siblings. Yep. Um, I don't know, do, do you suppose that um, there, that that Jesus, like, doesn't trust his brothers and sisters to take care of him? Do you suppose that they've wandered off to do other things? Uh, or that there's something going on about, like, whether anybody else provides for you materially, I want you to know that you've got a home and a protector, and so the beloved disciple, that figure. I don't know, like, how do you see that that moment of the story? I 
kind of always wondered if maybe Mary's other children, you know, Jesus's younger brothers and sisters, might have been, for whatever reason, not in a position to maybe take care of Mary. Oh, okay. Take care of Mary. Like, maybe... You know, after Jesus, that's when all of his sisters came along, Mm -hmm. and they're all married, and they all have their families, and then his brothers might be still too young to financially support Mm -hmm. Mary. Mm -hmm. But again, this is all guessing, because we don't know um, much about Jesus' brothers and sisters. I think there's even a a scene in John where there's reference to Jesus' siblings, at least, because there's a scene where they want him to know, are you going to come along the festival with us? And he says, no, I'm not coming, and then he comes anyway. (laughs) Um, but so like John himself, like is aware of the existence of siblings for Jesus, but yet they don't show up here. So whether they aren't a part of the picture, they aren't phys- you know, financially capable or aren't around, or if Jesus has some sense of for whatever else they will or won't be able to do, I can't guarantee what they will or won't do, but I can use everything in my last breath to John or whoever this beloved disciple is. Would you take care of mom for me? Yeah. It's interesting. I think the last mention then that we get of her in John's gospel then is that line that, and from that day, the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, took her into his own home mm-hmm. and like sort of, okay, and that brings closure to Mary's story. She's okay. She's going to be provided for. She's going to be all right there. It, it, I think it's interesting um, how despite all the song and dance, literal song and dance at the beginning of uh, the Jesus story where Mary breaks in a song and the angels are singing left and right, that um, the New Testament writers have great restraint in not making Mary into like the like the, the next leader of the church. Like her role, yep, she was she's mother, she's there, and then she must have been taken care of by the beloved disciple, but it's not like, all right, we need a biological, you know, relation to Jesus to carry on the faith. Like there, there are other you know, in a, in a royal dynasty, you know, the king dies. All right, we've got to find somebody else with someone in that family line who can carry this on. And the, the early church didn't do that. It's, I think, pretty significant that, like, they realized this community wasn't going to be defined by biology anymore. And it's not like, all right, well, we need someone with the same DNA as Jesus. That, clearly, that's the royal line now. Let's make that person the, the next in line or something like that. I mean, we do have Jesus' brother, James, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. is in the New Testament. He writes a couple of epistles, I believe. But, um, yeah, he is there, he's present, but he's not the main leader. Yeah. We have Peter and we have Paul for that. We don't have, you know, James. Yeah, yeah. And even though, yeah, there's reason to believe in the book of Acts that for a while that that James who gets remembered as, you know, James the brother of the Lord, because there's a bunch of Jameses floating around, Mm -hmm. um, that uh, even though he has a eventual position of leadership, that uh, the Gospels don't give us, like Jesus giving some kind of speech of, and now my successor shall be my mother Mary or my brother James. There, there isn't that. There's right. this, because at least as Luke wants to tell it, the Holy Spirit now empowers the community, and it becomes anybody and everybody. It's not just Peter even. It's, it, you know, all of them now get sent out so that, you know, it's it's Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch and it's Paul, you know, with uh, the, the the people in, in, in Greece and Macedonia and it's uh, people in every corner of creation who get scattered out to the four winds that it's not that there's this important line of succession of who will carry on the name and who has the bloodline of Jesus or whatever, unlike you know, how many other institutions or organizations in, in human life and civilization, they're like, oh, the king is dead. Well, we'll find his next relative, and that, that will, that'll be the family line. But the, the New Testament doesn't do that, and the New Testament doesn't hang it all on uh, one particular family line or on biology. Um, 
and and it, in significantly because the Christian community isn't, isn't meant to be a community that just births new Christians. Again, unlike ethnic groups, unlike even unlike you know Old Testament Israel, when when you get this repeated command in the Hebrew Scriptures, "Be fruitful and multiply," there is a sense of like we're a small group of people. We keep getting conquered by foreign empires. We got to keep making more of us. But the New Testament community doesn't do that. It's instead this: we'll continue without biology. We don't have. I think I think it's that Jurgen Moltmann line that says something like the New Testament community, the church is now the first time in history the community doesn't have to rely on childbirth to continue to grow and to increase, that we aren't dependent on biology. Uh, certainly, hooray when children are born, but that it's the, the growth of the New Testament community, the growth of the Jesus community, doesn't hang on us birthing more babies and saying, well, because I have these kids, they'll grow up in church and we'll just have enough of them that we can overpower everybody else and have the majority or something. That, that's not how we do it. Yeah, Christianity is not an ethnicity. <laughs> right. You we know, need to remember that sometimes. <laughs> Judaism is both a national, you know, it's yeah. an ethnicity and a faith. I yeah. Mean, you can you can be you know, grafted into Judaism and not be born Jewish. Right. And similarly, you can be an ethnically Jewish person who doesn't practice. practice. Yeah. But, but Christianity yeah, is not isn't, that. isn't like that. And sometimes it's worth remembering, too, that, like, the particular traditions that come with our branches of Christianity aren't universal. And to say, you know, you know, good Christian hymns, you know, and, like, Lutherans are guilty of sometimes, you know, you know, real Christian hymns, an old name German and Scandinavian ones, are like, well, you know, there are a lot of people who know other hymns, and those hymns have good things to say, too. Uh, and it, we all get sort of these favorite sort of you know branches of our family tree that we only think that these we're the only ones who have something interesting to say and we sometimes need to be reminded of this christianity thing is a, is a wholly different kind of community which means that we were set up from the beginning as a community that was something of an experiment i mean that, that like is grounded in otherness that it from the beginning it's not just we're ethnically jewish so we all like certain foods together but there's jew and gentile and rich and poor and all sorts of different uh you know skin colors and skin tones and men and women and all of them have these important roles in leadership early early on um that that's different from just about every other community and every other kind of club or whatever that in some ways is dependent on a certain amount of sameness and Christianity has been this leap this experiment of gods in a sense of like we're going to do things differently uh, and we're not just going to name Mary the successor of Jesus and she'll be the new vice Christ or something like that uh, because he's uh, come and gone but the, the community continued on even without bodily Jesus day by day and even though Mary was clearly still around for a while nobody said well let's just ask Mary she'll she'll solve this one for us she knows her son that they didn't do that too I think that's significant and maybe even then that means that Mary knew when to step back too that Mary didn't claim for herself well I'm 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 his mother I know so you should all do things that I like and I happen to like blue carpet that she doesn't do that any you know uh that there's instead this nope I'm not I'm not that's not her role that's not her gift in that moment and she doesn't need to take over and say well I'm I'm his mother so I I, I'm in charge now she's not queen regent you know yeah you have a king that's too young to rule so you have his mother ruling right you know she she doesn't take that place because she knows that's not her place. Yeah, yeah, and not because it's not a woman's role to have that, but more like she just knows. Yep, this this isn't this isn't mine to it's do. It's a level of humility that she shows, and you know, yes, I was chosen to to birth the Messiah, and that that's a great role, but. Now my my role is done. Yeah, and she doesn't like say. Now I'm going to write a gospel and then go on a book tour. Like, nope, there's there's there are boundaries for what mm-hmm. she does too. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I do hope that the conversation has been valuable or at least uh, thought-provoking for folks who've been listening. Um, (laughs) Hope that you can join us next time for more adventures and crazy faith talk. See ya. See you later. Bye.